Hello and welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. As always, it is your host, Nick Sararis. I just got back from the Mets-Dodgers game. Friend of the show, Chris Schweitzer, was gracious enough to invite me. And I will always have a good time at a baseball game, no matter how the actual game goes just because of the kind of person I am, how much I enjoy the company of my friends. But today's episode of the show, I've got some baseball thoughts. If you guys were curious what today's show is going to be about, it's not going to be particularly long. I'm not going to go on any long winded diatribes. I'm not going to complain about Ryan Reeves. I promise. I promise. I promise. But before I get to my, frustrating Mets rant for the next few weeks until I can have Chris on the show to properly unpack what went wrong with the Mets season. I do have to remind everyone to help support the show. No matter where you see the show, you can help support. Signal bumps, every social media platform, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, wherever you see the show, Signal boost it, please. Help other people find it. Help other people join the conversation. And if you're doing that already, take the extra leap. Please subscribe to the show, whatever podcasting platform you use to listen to podcasts. Throw the show a follow. Please, please, please. Stuff helps content creators like yours truly out a lot. If you do happen to be using Apple's podcasting platform because Apple controls the world, please, please, please go to the show's homepage at the bottom past all of the recent episodes. There's going to be five clear purple stars. You hit the one furthest to the right. That's leaving a five-star review. Beneath that is a little button. It says write a review in purple letters. If you have an extra minute or two, please leave a written review. Support your content creators. Take 30 seconds out of your day. Leave some words of encouragement. Shit means a lot to people like me who are out here trying to make good content that is just more empty talking head nonsense. That's the entire point of this show is people who care about this, people who care about sports enough to let it eat them up inside, who are going to be in bed staring at the ceiling, thinking about the Mets getting swept by the Dodgers. This is the show for you. This is not what you're going to hear on Sports Talk Radio. This is not what you're going to hear on officially licensed Met podcast, that kind of thing. Just an innate frustration that we thought this kind of season was not going to happen based on the opening day lineup. But I've got a solid 25 minutes here. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. Now, Smith is over twice in the series. Did he just add another? Smith on the loop for that one, and yes, Hopper's throughout the series for Will Smith. And with that, I will get on into it. Now, if you're new to the show, you probably don't know that I do not usually eat the garbage. And in the sports world, the expression eating the garbage means 
taking the false hope, doing what a dog does, seeing food in the garbage, not knowing that it's spoiled, that the dog shouldn't be eating it. They they, they go on headfirst, just dog, whatever. Yes, dog, I'm very lazy, that was a pun. But they eat whatever is in that garbage because they don't know any better. And as a sports fan, I have tried to insulate, form calluses, and stop myself from getting emotionally hurt because... I feel like I'm too smart to be doing this to myself over and over again, knowing what I know about the teams I root for. Yes, I've had two giant Super Bowls. Liverpool's won the Prem. Liverpool won a Champions League. But I'm talking specifically here about the Rangers, the Knicks, and the Mets. I came into this season with pretty high expectations. I figured the Mets would have one of the five... Five or ten between the top five, top ten rotations in all of baseball. You figure. Jacob deGrom, Marcus Stroman, Taiwan Walker, Carlos Carrasco. They had Jordan Yamamoto. They had a number of people for that fifth spot. Noah Syndergaard was supposed to be ready by the All-Star break. I figured, even if the lineup isn't great, The rotation should be one of the best in all of baseball, so even if the rotation isn't great, they should be able to score enough runs to be competitive. And we saw it last year in the 60-game abbreviated season because of the pandemic. The Mets had one of the best offenses in all of baseball, and that was in spite of the fact they had one of the worst averages in the league of any team hitting with runners in scoring position. So you figure positive regression, a little bit of offensive luck, quality pitching. The recipe for the Mets being successful was there. We figured the Braves were going to be pretty tough. The Nationals would be decent, but probably not good enough to win the division. And the Phillies would be somewhere between the Mets and the Braves in terms of competitiveness. The Phillies pitching staff, their bullpen, bowls very questionable. But at the very least, we figured the Mets would be competitive. I am ashamed to say, as of August 15th, which is Sunday night as I am recording this, I ate the garbage with the Mets. I bought into the excitement. I bought into Steve Cohen as the owner. I bought into Francisco Lindor as the everyday shortstop. The Mets just don't have it. And it's a number of things. I'm sure I will have an episode down the road with Chris, with a few other baseball people to kind of unpack what went wrong with the Mets, because on paper, the Mets are not as bad as their record. They are not a 500 baseball team if everybody plays up to their abilities. And that's part of it is the Mets not getting the best out of their players. There are a number of organizations in baseball that are able to get the most out of guys when they have limited stints with them. And there's no better example than the the Los Angeles Dodgers who just took three out of three on the East Coast, full well knowing they had to go back to L.A. after Sunday Night Baseball. And yes, it was nice to see Max Scherzer pitch in baseball. As a baseball fan, you never know how many times you're going to get to see a truly great pitcher pitch. I was lucky. First three Met games I went to this year, DeGrom started all of them, and I made it a point of going to as many DeGrom starts as possible this year because... In the back of my mind, I always knew there's a very real possibility he was not going to make it through the season just because of how the Mets' luck goes. They have a starting pitcher with an ERA under one through June. 
I was telling myself, yeah, he's not making this through the year. Whether it be injury or something fluky, I knew DeGrom was going to have issues eventually. It's why I made a point of seeing as many DeGrom starts as possible in the first half. I went to that game against the Cubs. He pulled himself out of after three innings. I went to a couple of decent DeGrom starts where he got through five, six, seven innings and was really feeling it, but it feels very cheap to attribute the Mets' lack of success to Jacob DeGrom being injured because it's not just Jacob DeGrom. If you've been watching the Mets night in and night out like me, like any number of my friends, like any number of people out there, you know the real problem lies in the batter's box. Whether it be left-handed or right-handed hitter, the Mets have a flawed approach at the plate, and it has left them hopeless. And I say this very confidently as someone whose baseball career ended at 14 years old. Still like throwing around a baseball, like having a catch, you know, Kevin Costner, Daddy, can we have a catch, Field of Dreams, all that stuff. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the Field of Dreams game at the end of the show because that was a very cool thing. But the Mets, as a team in that batter's box, do not have a plan. When I say having a plan, I mean very specifically here. Yes, if you are not a Michael Lewis Moneyball person who's read the book, this next part of this podcast might sound a little bit alien to you, but I promise it'll make sense to you. The most important thing for a hitter in that box is to have a plan. There are a few ways to go about it. You can be aggressive, you can be passive, but you need to have a plan. The real key here is identifying pitches and knowing what you want to swing at. One of the key points in Moneyball, even in the movie, so if you even if you've only seen the movie, you'll understand what I'm talking about here with Scott Hatterberg, you know, uh, Chris Pratt, you know, not, not Scott Hatterberg, but Chris Pratt, if you've seen the movie, you understand. The key to the A's success was on-base percentage and pitching. And one of the things that's emphasized in the book that is not really touched on in the movie is what Scott Hatterberg was doing at the plate. He understood he was only going to be able to hit certain pitches in certain situations. And what I mean by that is you can go up there as a hitter and understand I'm not going to be able to hit this pitcher's pitch checks. If it's a fastball power pitcher, I'm not going to be able to hit his fastball. I need to wait for off speed or vice versa. If it's a junk ball or if it's a Charlie Morton type guy, you know, I got to wait for the fastball because I'm not going to be able to touch his curveball. You got to know what you're looking for up one of the things that I wish people who professionally broadcasted baseball would emphasize more is statistically, the more pitches you see in an at-bat, the more likely you are as a hitter to get a hit, not even get on base. The more pitches you see in an at-bat, the more likely you are to actually get a hit. So let's start with that from the abstract. We want to see as many pitches as possible when we are in the batter's box. So that's our baseline. The second part of that is, let's say, like I just said, we we know we're not going to be able to hit certain pitchers' pitches. If it's a power pitcher, we know we're not going to be able to hit his fastball because we can't. We don't have the bat speed. We know we have a good eye. We can identify certain pitches out of the pitcher's hand. We want to be sitting for certain things. This year in particular, the Mets have had a really hard time with off-speed pitches, specifically the curveball. It's why Charlie Morton has given them fits in multiple starts for the Braves, but... If we know we can only hit certain pitches, 
we need to be selective enough to see said pitches. That is what is so frustrating about watching the Mets as a Met fan this time of year is the Mets should know better. These are professional baseball players with professional hitting consultants, professional coaches who should know that if batter X is struggling with this pitch, we got to tell him it's okay. You're struggling with this pitch, but when you see the other pitch that you can hit, you need to be able to hit it. If you are struggling that much against the curveball, when you see fastballs, you need to be able to put them in play and put them in play well. More than one occasion, Max Scherzer is throwing 93-94, not particularly hard fastballs, and the Mets are swinging and missing, no idea what's coming at them. And Ron Darling, I believe, no, excuse me, it was Keith and Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez and Gary Cohen on the Saturday Night Met Game broadcast on picks, and Keith was talking about it with Gary in particular that today's pitchers, excuse me, today's hitters have too much information at their disposal. They know what certain pitchers like to throw in certain situations. So they're up there guessing. They're not actually actively hitting up there. They're guessing what is going to come to them based on what they already know about said pitcher. And this is one of the things that anybody can understand. If a pitcher is used to throwing certain things in certain situations, wouldn't it behoove them to go away from their tendencies against you? This is one of the things that even us as plebeians who are not professional baseball players can understand. If you're in a one-two count and you usually strike people out with your fastball, don't you know the hitter's going to be sitting fastball and more likely to put the ball in play because they're sitting in fa- sitting a fastball that would make me more likely to want to throw an off-speed pitch if I was a pitcher and all of these things these very simple concepts that even people who don't play professional baseball can understand they're absent from the Mets approach at the plate I didn't go into Sunday night's Cookie Carrasco versus Max Scherzer's matchup with high expectations for the Mets but Really quickly, it got away from them. 4 nothing, 5 nothing after the first inning, I believe. Carrasco got hit pretty hard in that first inning, and Carrasco had given them three good starts before that. He was pretty good that first start, the night they wore the black jerseys. He was pretty good in Miami, didn't give him any length. But objectively speaking, Sunday night, he was pretty bad. He got beat on his fastball, Dodgers driving the ball, and it's hard to compare a pitcher's performance when you're facing a Dodgers lineup that has upwards of five or six guys who can make an all-star team on any given year. I mean, you're talking about Max Muncy, who's been amazing, Chris Taylor, who's been amazing, Trey Turner, who they traded for, Justin Turner, who's been awesome since he got there, Mookie Betts, who did not play on Sunday night, Cody Bellinger, who's been pretty bad this year but has had good success in the past. That's a really talented lineup. But, 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 but. I know I hate saying butts and qualifiers and that kind of thing, but bear with me here for a second. You see what the Dodgers are good at. The Dodgers are good at extracting value from players who don't look particularly good. Chris Taylor, waiver claim. Max Muncy, who made the all-star team with Chris Taylor, a waiver claim. I think it was Cespedes' Family Barbecue's Twitter account, which retweeted the tweet 
of the A's DFAing Max Muncie three years ago. And yes, Max Muncie was DFA'd, meaning anybody in all of baseball could claim him. And the Dodgers pro scouting staff identified him and said, we can do something with him. We can fix this hole in this player's game. And Max Muncie made the all-star team. He's arguably been the Dodgers' best player in the first half. It's either him or Chris Taylor. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But I don't want... This isn't about the Dodgers. This is about the Mets. The Mets came into the season with the idea that we're going to pitch really well. We're going to have great infield defense. And we saw it there for glimmers first half of the season. The Mets pitching staff was remarkable. The fact they got through the first half with DeGrom, Walker, and Stroman all having ERAs below three, genuinely commendable. They had a great infield defense, which helped with the balls in play. The Mets miss Lindor a lot, and I've been critical of Lindor's lack of a stick at the plate. He's not been particularly good in terms of putting the ball in play. His on-base percentage isn't terrible. It's still over 300, so he's getting on base. He's drawing walks, but... He has not been hitting for the power that he did in years past in Cleveland, but where the Mets really miss Lindor is the infield defense because the rest of the infielders' lives are easier when they have Francisco Lindor. And we haven't even addressed the fact that they traded for Javi Baez, who hurt himself swinging the bat. And I'm still kind of in shock that Zach Scott admitted the Mets have a compliance problem in terms of strength and conditioning with hydration because this is something that people especially talk about in football the soft tissue injuries the hamstrings the obliques those are the injuries that are preventable if you are properly hydrated and you are well conditioned the fact the Mets have had so many hamstrings so many obliques that is a sign of a team that is not following their plan. And Zach Scott admitted as much that he said the team has a legitimate problem with compliance in terms of getting the players on the team to be properly hydrated going into game situations. And it's why they've had so many soft tissue injuries. Those conditioning and hydration issues are addressable. Those are things as a team you can fix. You can't fix if someone can hit a curveball. You can fix someone pulling a hamstring because they're dehydrated. And that is at least part of what is so frustrating with this Mets team is, on paper, you see the plan. Jeff McNeil, legitimate batting title guy his first two years in the league. Pete Alonso, 53 home runs as a rookie. J.D. Davis, 25 home runs-ish, 255, 260, between 80 and 100 RBIs. Conforto, 30 home runs, 100 RBIs, 260. Dom Smith, same ballpark. That is what is so frustrating. The Mets are not living up to their billing. Because on paper, the Mets should be so much better than this. And that is what I'm talking about when I, in my initial introduction here, I'm talking about eating the garbage. I bought the excitement. I bought the hype. I really thought the Mets were going to be pretty good this year because they have so much talent on paper. That is what is so frustrating about the team right now. All of the potential for a successful baseball team was there. They had a good first half, and yes, that was built on a house of cards. That was built entirely on a rotation that was giving up less than three runs every single start. 
And at some point, you had to figure the Mets would need to score runs to win baseball games just on the nature of a long baseball season. That's the thing about baseball. It is a long season. Six months, April to the end of September is your regular season. And you need to be able to adapt to situations as they arise. And the Mets have had injury problems, to be very fair. They missed Nimmo for quite a few months. They missed Conforto for a few months. Lindor has been out at four of the supposed six weeks of his prognosis. DeGrom has missed weeks at a time. Syndergaard has not pitched this year. Carrasco just made his first start of the year two weeks ago. And that's not even to address J.D. Davis's hand problem, which is still apparently bothering him. The fact that even though Conforto came back, he has been horrendous since he came back from the injured list. And... All of this is so painfully frustrating. And at some point, the Mets will need to address the very real problem that this core probably isn't good enough. Because I talked about it with Chris. I talked about it on the way back from the game. The Mets have had this core of McNeil, Alonzo, DeGrom, Dom Smith, J.D. Davis... Fordo, Nimmo, for, we'll say 2019, 2020, 2021. And even though individually they will all put up decent stats, and it kind of feels unfair to lump DeGrom in with the rest of them because he's a pitcher and he's, you know, you know the DeGrom stats. The, if, he, if the Mets scored more than three runs in all his starts, his career record would be like 75 and 10, something ridiculous like that. But... At some point, you need to address that your team has a very defined ceiling, and that ceiling not being contender status is a problem, legitimately. The Mets have had multiple managers now. Mickey Calloway, very much a moron. I think Louis Rojas is fine, but he's not good. I mean, you saw it on Sunday Night Baseball. Why did the Mets have Carrasco hit? if he was going to bunt and then come out of the game in the next inning. Very bad bench management. You have one out. You have runners on first and second. If you're going to take Carrasco out of the game and be aggressive because you're bringing in Jake Reed, someone who I had never heard of before Sunday night when he was on the mound pitching for the Mets, you should pinch hit an actual hitter and try to drive in the runs aggressively rather than passively by bunting them over and trying to get a situational hit, which you know you have had a hard time doing all year. The Mets have struggled with situational hitting. When I say situational hitting, I mean runners on runners in scoring positions, so second and third base with less than two outs. You know you've had a hard time with that all year. Why wouldn't you give yourself two cracks at it? And yes, I saw Louis Rojas's comments after the game where he said, I didn't want to have a three-man bench after two innings. And, okay, if that is your argument, that you didn't want to have a three-man bench after two innings, Carrasco has to pitch the third inning. And I accept the fact that is probably punting the game because Carrasco obviously did not have his stuff. But at the same time... I understand you burn nobody important. Jake Reed, Yancy Diaz, they had Drury pitch, they had PR pitch, but have some fucking pride, man. You're a professional baseball team, and 
It's four nothing, five. Excuse me, five nothing in that second inning. If you don't think you can score five runs in seven innings, why are we here? Why are we here if you cannot score five runs in seven innings to get it tied? That is what is so painful. The Mets do not make sound game management decisions, and that compounds with the fact their talent hasn't lived up to their potential this year because, like I've said more than once, the Mets have enough talent to be able to score enough runs. We saw it. For 60 games last year, the Mets were one of the best run-scoring offenses in baseball, but of course last year they had no pitching, so they didn't win enough games to make the expanded playoff work. Everybody made the fucking playoffs. The Marlins made the fucking playoffs last year. That is how much of a joke the Mets are. That the Marlins, who had half of their team knocked out because of COVID and used upwards of 70 players last year, the Marlins made the playoff as opposed to the Mets. At some point, at some point, the Mets need to address the very real fact that they do not understand what they are doing. It is so unbelievably painful to sit through night after night. The bad game management decisions, which we just talked about, which was 4 nothing, second inning, runners on first and second with one out. Your pitcher is coming up to bat. You have four players on your bench, which are Drury, PR, Nito, and... I forget, uh, Travis Blankenhorn, excuse me. Travis Blankenhorn, the fourth player. So you got those four guys in the second inning when they are they have runners on first and second with one out, and Max Scherzer is pitching. Now, this isn't even discussing the fact that bunting runners over doesn't make a ton of sense except in very specific situations. Amongst them is pitcher hitting. So if you want Carrasco to pitch the third inning, I have no problem with you sending him up there to bunt. And he got them over to second and third with one out, but... Nimmo grounded out, no runs. So, in a vacuum, I have no problem with you wanting Carrasco to bunt. But if Carrasco is going to bunt, you need to get another inning or two out of him. He only had, I think, 55, 60 pitches after two innings. And I understand you want to say we're being aggressive, we're trying to keep this game close, but how can you possibly say that when you're bringing in Jake Reed, and Yancy Diaz to pitch. Jake Reed, who I, who watches a lot of baseball, plays a ton of MLB The Show, had never heard of before Sunday night. You can sense that kind of impending doom in my voice that I've accepted the Mets are going to miss the playoffs, even though they were in first place in the division pretty much the entire first half. I, and the thing that's the real bitch of it the Phillies aren't good. The Phillies have no bullpen, and they have one starting pitcher. They have Zach Wheeler, and Aaron Nola's good, like, every two starts. Other than that, they got no pitching. Their bullpen is horrendous. The Braves lost their best player in Ronald Acuna. Their pitching staff isn't terrible. That's not that good. It's not amazing. It's not lights out. Their bullpen is pretty mediocre. Freddie Freeman's had a pretty rough season to this point. Ozzy Albies has been very good, to be fair. Austin Riley has been good. Dansby Swanson has had spurts of being pretty good. And at some point, I just want the Mets to admit, this team's not good enough. And I know no team is ever going to come out and say, we're not good enough. Because the Mets, in particular, have always made a big, big point 
of trying to draw a gate, especially for weekend series, because they needed the money. The Wilpons needed every last ticket sold because they were crying poor because of the Birdie Madoff Ponzi scheme, which they are still seeking restitution from. The Mets have the richest owner in baseball in Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen has enough money. He could buy 10, 15, maybe 20 of the other teams in Major League Baseball and still have some money left over. I don't need the Mets bullshitting me when you have an owner that's this rich. And that is one of the things the Dodgers have done under the ownership group, which Magic Johnson has led for 10 years now since the McCourt sold the team, I believe in 2010 when the divorce spurred the uh, selling of the team. The Dodgers have put every bit of the resources necessary to fielding a good team. They had Don Mattingly for a number of years as the manager. Donnie Baseball wasn't cutting it for them. They brought in Dave Roberts. And yes, I don't think Dave Roberts is a great manager. I think he's pretty average, but the Dodgers have given him good players. The Mets have given Louis Rojas, Kevin PR, who has an OPS, not OBS, on base percentage. He has an OPS, which is slugging, plus on base percentage, 400-something since June. That means he is getting on base less than 2 out of 10 times. And he is not getting an average of two bases. So OPS is slugging plus on-base percentage. So on-base percentage is just the number of times you get to base. So that's walks, that's hits, reached on error, that kind of thing. So and a good on-base percentage is 350. Slugging percentage is the number of bases you average per plate appearance. A good slugging percentage is in the sixes. If you average more than half a base per plate appearance, that means you're getting on base pretty regularly and you're getting doubles or home runs a decent amount of the time. So for a player who is still getting playing time to have an OPS of the two put together of less than 500, you are not a Major League Baseball player. And I understand the Mets were pretty thin for stretches there. They had Khalil Lee playing. They had Cameron Mabin playing. They had Billy McKinney playing. At this point in the season, for Kevin PR to be taking a roster part, roster spot is unacceptable for a team that is trying to convince you they are in the mix for the postseason. And that is what I mean when I say I just want to be treated with respect. This is my greatest frustration with professional sports franchises. I just want you to treat me and the rest of the general public with respect. The Mets are a fringe playoff team right now. I believe they are two and a half games back of the first place Braves after the loss Sunday night. If you're lucky, you're going to have a race with the Braves down the stretch here going into September. That's if you're lucky, if everything goes right for you. If DeGrom comes back the second week of September, if Syndergaard can come into your bullpen first week of September, your pitchers figure it out, and your lineup gets it together, best case is you have a showdown with the Braves, you try and beat them. Okay, great. Let's say you win the National League East. Because the wild card's out of the mix. The Giants, the Padres in that NL West, 
the Giants, the Padres, the Dodgers. All three of those teams will make the playoffs. Two of them are going to be playing in the wild card game. The Mets will not be playing in said wild card game. The Mets, if they are lucky, are looking down the barrel at a National League divisional series against the winner of that wild card game. We just saw the Dodgers take three games, not easily because the Friday night and Saturday night both went to extra innings. We saw the Mets take two out of three from the Padres in June. I went to one of those games. I saw pretty good pitching out of Taiwan Walker. But these are not the first half Mets. If you told me the first half Mets were going to be playing the Dodgers, the Padres, or the Giants in the wild card game, I'd say, all right, we bring DeGrom in there. Okay, you get DeGrom three starts in nine days in a best of five series. Maybe, maybe in a divisional round series you could stretch three, but realistically two. So you figure. In a best of five against one of those teams, you get DeGrom for two, Strowman for two, Taiwan Walker for one. On paper, that sounds okay. The problem is DeGrom hasn't been healthy, and I really, really don't want to get into a DeGrom diatribe at 12.30 at night because I would like to go to bed at some point. But realistically... The Mets should be shutting DeGrom down for the rest of the season and getting him ready for next year because the lingering arm trouble is a concern. At 33, 34 years old, it is a legitimate concern that your best player, and make no mistake, DeGrom was spectacular, phenomenal, superhuman, whatever superlative you want to put on him for that first half. DeGrom was truly incredible. If he cannot stay healthy, you cannot depend on him. And that is one of the things we really got to do a better job of as sports media people of addressing is when you are building a team, you want to cover as many contingencies, parallel delineations in the universe, whatever word you want to use to address situational factors that may arise, whether it's injuries, factors outside of your control in this environment if it's a COVID outbreak whatever you need to be able to address as many problems as possible with the players you have in-house because if you got to go outside you're going to have to give things up if you are addressing as many problems as possible in-house you probably have a pretty good baseball team which is the goal here you want to have something that's sustainably good over a long period of time you want to try and have something that is as likely as possible and that is one of the main points of this show when I'm talking about football, hockey, basketball, baseball, UFC, soccer, racing, whatever. You want to have something that is as likely to as possible to happen. If you have something that is likely to happen over a long period of time and something doesn't break right for you, okay, at least you had a plan and the plan didn't work. That is acceptable. Having a flawed plan from the outset before the problems arise is where I get frustrated. And it ties me back into what I was just talking about, which is teams treating their fans like idiots. Teams need to treat their fans with more respect 
and just be flat out honest with them. I understand you're trying to sell tickets and it's important that you sell tickets because you got to hire staff, you got to pay your staff who's working at the stadium, all that kind of stuff. I understand that stuff is important. You want us to pay those prices to buy those tickets. You got to give us something worth buying. That is my frustration. These teams, all they do is spam your email, call you, beg you to buy season tickets. Why would I buy season for the Mets? To watch Carlos Carrasco bunt and then someone from AAA pitch three innings? No, I'm not buying season tickets if you told me that's what we were doing. That is my frustration. I want to be treated with respect from the teams that beg me for my money. Don't have a lot of money. Trying to get a full-time job. If you're begging me for my money, I need a little bit of respect. That's the thing here. If the Mets told me and came out and said, we're going to try our best to make the playoffs this year, but if things don't break right, we promise we'll shake things up in the offseason, we'll come at it with a new plan, that would at least be respectable. What the Mets have done this season is not respectable. That is my main frustration, and... The Mets had an opportunity to address their problems at the trade deadline. They got Javi Baez and Trevor Williams. Terrific. You, you traded Peter Crow Armstrong, who's probably going to be a decent Major League Baseball player, but messed up his shoulder, hasn't played in a while. Fine. It's not the giving up the prospect I have a problem with. It's that you didn't address your problems. You knew the pitching was going to regress. What'd you do? You got a triple-A number five starter. And when I say triple-A number five starter, I mean Trevor Williams was sent right away to the Mets triple-A affiliate. And he's going to go up and down between starts for roster flexibility. Great. Terrific. He was fine. The one start he made against the Marlins during the week last week. But you knew the pitching was a problem. I, I talked about it with Chris, and I've referenced Chris more than once. I keep doing that because Chris was nice enough to take me to the Met game. He had a ticket. He offered it to me. Chris said it. The Braves got Adam Duvall from the Marlins for nothing. You could have gotten Joaquim Soria from the Diamondbacks for a player to be named later, like the team that acquired him did. The prices for the marquee players at the deadline were kind of high. The Dodgers gave up a pretty penny for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, but those are both expiring players. I think Josiah Gray and um, Kybert Ruiz will be decent Major League Baseball players, but the Dodgers saw it. They said, we need another pitcher. We could use one more bat. We can't spare any expense. We don't know how many more chances we're going to get at it with the group we've got. we got to go for it right now. The Mets... Mets got a lot of decisions coming up. Conforto's a free agent. Stroman's a free agent. Syndergaard's a free agent. Nimmo's arbitration. Dom Smith is arbitration. They gotta figure these things out. That is my complaint. The Mets did not have a great plan because as soon as something went wrong, the injuries, they got good run out of the bench players in the first half. This isn't to minimize the con the contributions of guys in their first half. Billy McKinney was terrific for a month. Kevin PR was okay for a month. Jonathan VR is a solid bench bat. They got good production out of Jose Peraza. At some point, if the lineup you have every day is not working for you, you gotta shake things up. 
And I understand you feel confident in your plan because you think your plan is going to work. But this ties back to my whole treating us with respect. If the plan is not working day after day, you need to change something. We've had two and a half years of this group of players on the Mets. What do we have to show for it? A nice August and September in 2019. Some good offensive production in the bubble season. The bubble season. The pandemic season of 2020. Excuse me. Bubble season. My brain's on hockey. But in 2021. Great. You're going to finish in second or third in an NL East. That was very winnable. All because your plan did not. Wow, I've really done 40 minutes. I was planning on spending a little bit talking about the Yankees, the Field of Dreams game against the White Sox, but I'll only do five minutes on that. But real quick, Field of Dreams game from a television standpoint, an entertainment standpoint, terrific. I think Rob Manfred paid off Liam Hendricks in that top of the ninth inning to give up the home run to Staten to get it to the bottom of the ninth with something to play for. But I digress. Very cool feature. I've long since said baseball is the best sport that translates to film. It's got the most good sports movies. I know hockey guys like me will say Mystery Alaska, Miracle, Slapshot, Goon. It's a pretty good four. Kevin Costner's got three good baseball movies, and that's not talking about Major League. That's not talking about League of Their Own. There are so many good baseball movies. I didn't even mention The Sandlot, which is something I think MLB should explore, a Sandlot game, because Sandlot has resonated through the eras like Field of Dreams. And I know Fox beat it over the head, but that generational connection of sport through family is one of the things I'm able to identify. Uh, My dad, very busy individual, working most of his adult life, Those times he was able to make time with me to play catch still means something to me. So the Field of Dreams stuff, nostalgic, hits hits close to home. I do appreciate the whole can we have a catch dad thing that Field of Dreams explored and something that baseball looked to emphasize. It helped a lot. The game was very good, to be quite honest with you. I didn't have high expectations for a game started by Andrew Haney for the Yankees, but very exciting game. John Smoltz is very bad at color commentary, to be quite honest. He spent a lot of time talking about Lance Lynn being fat, Tyler Wade just being a baseball player. You know, the cliche things I complain about broadcasts not helping. And that's no discredit because Joe Buck has gotten a lot better on play-by-play, particularly in baseball. Buck's first love is always going to be baseball. He was brought up with baseball, his dad being the Cardinals broadcaster as long as he was him taking over for his dad. Joe Buck's first love is always going to be baseball, but masterful call. Just impeccable broadcasting on the Tim Anderson home run off of Zach Britton. One of the things that Buck has gotten a lot better with is knowing when to not talk during a broadcast, which is what I often say is the most difficult difficult part of broadcasting is Just knowing when to let the natural sound carry the moment because the energy is what's important. Words won't be able to describe the pictures. That is the sign of a truly great broadcaster is knowing when to let the moment speak for itself. Buck doing the high, gone, home run, White Sox win, and then just letting the natural sound carry Tim Anderson around the bases, the fireworks shoot off. Amazing broadcasting. And really quick. 
just as a nice little tease for what's coming up during the week. Yankees have kind of figured it out. I'm not ready to say the Yankees are totally good yet because they only have one pitcher I trust in Garrett Cole. You don't know what you're going to get out of Jamison Talion, Lucas Gill, the minor league guy who is a prospect card in MLB The Show, which is the only reason I know he exists. Other than that, you don't know what you're getting out of that rotation. Zach Britton has been objectively bad. Chapman's been objectively bad. Chad Green is exhausted. Like Ford, pretty gassed. I mean, at some point, they gotta figure it out. I think the Yankees are gonna make a run of it here in the AL East down the stretch. I think that's gonna probably be the most exciting race in baseball. The Yankees, Rays, and Red Sox all fighting for that division. The Yankees are probably too far out to catch up to first place. But we're going to have an exciting race for the AL wild card between the Yankees, the Jays, the Rays, and the Oakland A's. Yes, I rhymed all of those. I'm good at this. I know what I'm doing. I think we're going to have a very exciting race there. But I will say, I've long been a defender of Brian Cashman. And as I wrap up here, I promise this will only be a minute. I've long been a defender of Brian Cashman as general manager of the Yankees. I think he does a really good job of understanding value and knowing when to go for it and when not to go for it. Over the last few years, he's had opportunities to add at the deadline. He's never added pitching, which has been the Yankees' problem, and they didn't really add any pitching. Andrew Haney, a pretty bad pitcher, like objectively speaking, they got from the Angels at the deadline, but they got Rizzo in there. They got Luke Voigt in there. Voight coming back from the injured list, of course. But they got Rizzo in there. They got Joey Gallo in there. Voight coming back from the injured list. That's three serious bats you're adding back into your lineup. They've gotten good production out of Odor. LeMahieu hasn't been great, but he's slowly putting it together. Stanton is being held together with duct tape and glue, but he's been able to play close to every day. Judge has been what they needed him to be. That might be the single most interesting decision that comes up this offseason, what the Yankees do with Aaron Judge, more than any other team's decision with any pending free agent. Yankees are obviously qualifying off for Judge, but I'm very curious to see if they can iron out a long-term extension or if he tries to bank on himself with something a little bit more short-term and get what's out there on the open market. It seems like he's kind of basking in being face of the Yankees, but... Money talks, especially in baseball. Free agents will go anywhere if the check is right. Mark Burley was a Marlin, for God's sake. Jose Reyes was a Marlin, for God's sake. Anyone will go anywhere if the money's right. I hope today's show was not too depressing. I hope you glean something out of my misery. And yeah, if I had you had a gun to my head right now, I'd probably say the World Series was going to be Dodgers-Astros. But... But, 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 but maybe the Yankees. My friend Darren will be on later in the week to talk about the Yankees since the deadline, the moves they've made, why they've been playing better as of late. One of the early guests of the show, DeAndre Graves, who was on very, very early. We're talking in the teens, and we're in the hundreds now of episodes. We'll be coming back. He was at the IndyCar race and... The NASCAR Cup Series race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the road course. A whole lot of disaster to discuss from the racing scene. That will be Wednesday's episode. Darren, talking about the Yankees, will be Thursday. Not sure what tomorrow's episode is going to be.
I will see you guys then. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show.